Chapter 8. Life happens one day at a time. Life happens one day at a time. It is a series of nows in which the past has always gone and the future never arrives. I have come upon one day that I want to write about and it's yesterday. Thursday the 12th of September 2019. To anybody reading this expecting a chronological flow, apologies. This book is now about to go all over the place. But then again, life happens like that. And since this is about a life... This could have been a postscript, I guess, but I've decided not. I want it here and now. I want to write about today, as it happens, with no recall needed for a change. All in real time. I will admit to my ongoing fear that I do not do this writing stuff well enough. My coach and mentor in the process, the wonderful Alan Johnson, says that in his esteemed opinion, I do write well enough, but I'm still racked with doubt. He also says that whatever you want to do, such as chopping and changing of timescales, is alright. It's your book. This second week of September 2019 has been a funny one but then again fairly typical. Grandson Zachary has just had his first week at senior school and I have been wondering how the eccentric little soul will cope. We've had the Independent Retailers Forum in town, a bunch of 30 or so of the best in Great Britain and Ireland. They are my son Patrick's network really, but I've got to know most of them on a couple of great trips abroad to see best practice. Now, unbelievably, they've come to see us here in Hull to get some insights into excellence in the people thing and the way we support our community. My school colleague and best friend Ian Grandage is over from Phoenix, Arizona, visiting his family with his lovely wife, Shelley. I envy him, for I am still largely estranged from mine. We always meet up when he's over and we agree to have dinner on Thursday evening. I have a local enterprise partnership, LEP, board meeting where we will be signing off the humble local industrial strategy and my good friend mentor and role model lord chris haskins will step down from eight years as chair thank you chris you have been the third boss in my life after bob dennison and rodney anderson 40 plus years ago i will miss you in our monday morning huddles with steve parnaby Sewell estate shareholders dave leadham sam and davison joe barnes Martin Stead and myself are being taken through a decision-making process used by NASA in the space programme by my friend and colleague, Professor David Hall. This is to have a different slant on a potential acquisition, but David and I spend as much time in the margins talking about For Entrepreneurs Only, an organisation we co-founded seven years ago to aid entrepreneurs in helping the local economy. Our issue being that it has drifted from its pure and focused mission into doing all sorts of other stuff. Strategic drift always happens when you forget your core purpose, and we bemoan this fact. I meet my enfant terrible, Tommy Coyle the boxer, to look at supporting him in another of the business ideas of this charming one-off serial entrepreneur. As we have been to his 30th birthday party the previous Saturday, Sue fusses over him as usual and I give him the gift we never got to impart on the night. I'm visiting my old school, Cottingham High, with Patrick, at the request of the new head teacher, Loz, 
to see how Sewell Group can further collaborate following Sewell on the go's help in sourcing a minibus and fueling it for them. I mentioned that the establishment had, in fact, expelled me 50 years earlier, and Loz says he knows as he has examined the records. I don't know if he was teasing or exactly what he wants from the meeting. I have a private meeting arranged with my old fruit trades football buddy, Ben Tarbotton, to try and breathe some new life into our Yorkshire Energy Park idea. All the authorities should have been encouraging this project in the heart of the supposed energy estuary, but have been frustratingly and expensively bureaucratic and nimby. We are pretty frustrated, but resolved to press on. Winners never quit, and quitters never win. We recall the famous quote of legendary American football coach Vince Lombardi. In any event, we cannot let the knobhead Luddites win. My Wednesday morning session with my personal trainer, the irrepressible John Richardson, is curtailed by a flare-up of osteoarthritis in my left knee, as predicted by the docs all those years ago after the football injuries I suffered. But it's okay really, and not nearly as bad as they'd feared. I have been training every Wednesday and Saturday morning with Mr Richardson since I made the decision on my 50th birthday that it was my health and well-being that was to be the major risk item in my life going forward and have worked out four times a week ever since. I have been there with John on his journey from fitness trainer to psychotherapist and loved every bit of it. Ever since doing psychology as a supplementary subject at university I have known that everything starts and ends at the bit between your ears. I once more observed that sport is way ahead of business in the way they use psychologists to aid performance and player welfare. And so to Thursday the 12th of September 2019. It is a lovely bright morning that calls me from my breakfast to the daily task of exercising our four dogs on the backfields of our hobby farm. I throw a little spinning frisbee for Riva Vaughan, the gorgeous German shepherd. Teddy Boy, the shepherd cross husky, has his floppy plastic chicken, and young Bob, the aristocratic border collie, former of the Haskins farm in Skidby, will try to steal one or both. Whippet Cross Collie Monty has pensioners' rights to a lion if he wants one, and this morning is one of those days. On my walk through and around the paths I have cut through the long grass, I will make a business call or two, stop and sit at one of my strategically placed seats to compose an email, interrogate the web for the morning news and see who's saying what on Twitter. At 15 acres, I probably have one of the bigger offices in Cottingham, but no doubt the only one where rain and or a big scary white barn owl swooping low can bring work to a halt as a fire alarm does in a more conventional office. On the way back to the house, through the orchard, I pick the last of the russets and Cox's orange pippins for me to consume during the week but I weaken and give both Jack and Annie our very big, very black horses, one each, for they are waiting expectantly at the paddock fence. I'm spoiling them more at the moment, for we recently lost the third of the trio, little white Cinderella pony Bonnie, rescued 25 years ago to a life of luxury here at Parklands. Putting a horse to sleep is not recommended as a spectator activity, and you need much more than an urn for the ashes. I need to shower for time is getting on and I'm misjudging the passage of it more as I get older. This often results in me dashing around when there really should be any need. 
It's decent kit on this morning. I have been invited to speak at the East Radin of Yorkshire Council Managers Conference at Brittington Spa, a favourite venue. The drive on a beautiful sunny day down the East Coast in my brand new Aston Martin DB11 is delightful. I am a very lucky boy and I am spoiling myself more nowadays. I joke that somebody has to, but that's not true. Lots of people have talent and work hard, so to have the rub of the green that's needed to get where I am today is really appreciated and I never take it for granted. I turned down the slipway off Marine Drive onto the promenade, past a couple of old tourists, probably younger than me, looking down their noses at the car and swinging to a familiar car parking spot by the stone stairs up to the main road. The tide is out and the sand wet, flat, glistening and perfect. The old couple walk past me as I stand to take in the view and they look down their noses once again with no eye contact or hint of a greeting. They are probably comforts as the locals call them. West Riding folk who comfort day and stop for week. I walk up the steps from the promenade and into a surprisingly deserted marine drive past all the posters for the many innovatively named tribute acts coming to the venue and into the main spa entrance. Most of the staff seem to know me whether I recognise them or not. This gives me a warm feeling of coming home rather than being a visiting speaker and that is really nice, especially the big warm hug from spa manager Jan with whom I have shared many such embraces when finishing a Yorkshire International Business Convention, YABC, in triumph. We are in the beautiful and majestic Royal Hall and there are a hundred plus local authority managers sitting at round tables on its dance floor under the iconic dome resplendent in its pastel colours. They are listening to the speaker listed on the programme as immediately before me but it quickly becomes obvious that they are running behind. So I settle down to listen to earnest but worthy stories of adult social care, wondering whether they know what they are letting themselves in for with the next speaker. I glance upwards and around the empty balconies on three sides of the hall and think of the times they have been full of people looking at me on that wide elevated stage in front as I host the Yorkshire International Business Convention and introduce some of the best known faces in the world. The spell is broken and I'm back in the present. It is my turn to be introduced in a role reversal with the Australian of Yorkshire Council, ERYC Director John Skidmore. I thank him for his warm, comprehensive and over-generous introduction, and also the warning I pretend that he's given. John is indeed well-researched. Given my background in construction and the game of football, he is concerned regarding the possible use of colourful language. He has told me that this will not be tolerated in front of his managers and if there were any occurrence he would be extremely embarrassed. Embarrassed to the point where he may even have to consider his position and resign from the East Riding of Yorkshire Council. Well, welcome to his farewell party. A few smiles and some titters but not enough to convince me that they understand they are getting somebody from a different world with irreverent stories and unusual business lessons drawn from them. I admit to being uneasy and unpredictable when unscripted and under pressure, sometimes engaging gobs at a time that is significantly before I get round to engaging brain, as my mother used to say. I give as an example of this 
the occasion of the retirement of John Prescott in 2006 from a distinguished career in Parliament and as Deputy Prime Minister. A big local do is being held at the KC Stadium. I have a VIP guest pass for pre-dinner drinks in the boardroom, but get the time wrong and I am unusually early. I stand in the almost empty room, wine glass in hand, being my normal awkward self, looking round for a friendly face. My isolation is ended by a tap on the shoulder. I turn round to be confronted by a familiar figure, smaller and older looking than I imagined. Hello, I'm Tony Blair, he says. I'm surprised into vacancy and struggle for words. Any words. Uh, hello, uh, good to meet you, where, uh, well... The former Prime Minister stares at me in silence, leaving me on the hook. Uh, whatever anybody says, uh, last ten years, great job. Blair's fixed stare changes marginally as he uses a strange and unique sound. Oh. I panic and babble on to fill the void of silence. And you came over particularly well in The Queen, I say, referencing the then-current film about the death of Lady Diana, starring Michael Sheen as Blair. The real one says, oh, again, in exactly the same fashion, and walks off. I think, shit, I really wanted to talk to you. Done it again. I could tell that the audience of East Riding of Yorkshire Council managers were still not sure about me, but I had at least established a vulnerability which I hoped would endear me to them. It also provided the platform for my opening remarks on my given subject of leadership. I had told the story many times, but today was particularly special because it was 18 years ago to the very day that its events took place. Once again, I proffered an example of me panicking under pressure and engaging gob before brain. It is September the 12th, 2001, I began. The year after the turn of the millennium, I am Hun Humber Chamber of Commerce Vice President and working my way towards the top job. I was part of a delegation visiting Westminster to represent the area and lobby ministers for its benefits. This particular visit included a round-table dinner with the Labour Government Transport Minister, Stephen Byers. Ten or so chamber officers gather in splendid surroundings, and our host asks us to sit down at the wonderful shining silver table setting. Byers opened proceedings in solemn fashion. I do not feel we can start before properly recognising and reflecting upon the horrific events in New York yesterday. He was of course referring to the attack on the Twin Towers of 9-11. He turned to his immediate left, where, as luck would have it, I was seated trying to mind my own business. He looked directly at me. Starting with you. Oh dear, this was not going to go well. My mind went blank and my gob was duly engaged. I hesitated for what seemed an age as the gathering waited patiently. I'm glad I live in a backwater. I tried to lighten the mood. We haven't got a building above ten stories. I'd done it again. What am I like? Minister Byers was quite rightly disdainful and moved on to the guy on my left and hence on round the table for some more appropriate comments. I was mortified and needed some distraction from the emotional pain and embarrassment. The distraction came from musing on the YBC 
and another top international speaker we were getting over to Harrogate. This was to be the Mayor of New York City, Rudolf Giuliani, who was coming over to speak on how the city had been cleaned up to be safe for tourists and its own citizens by the controversial practice of zero-tolerance policing. I thought his speech has just changed. It must now be about leadership. The following year, on the first Friday in June, Rudolf Giuliani strode onto the YABC stage at the Harrogate Showground Pavilion to be greeted by 1,500 business people and their guests. He surprisingly walked straight past the lectern that was waiting for him and up to the perimeter of the stage, where he stood with his feet protruding over the edge. He began his address in the most authoritative and direct manner I have ever seen. Leadership. Three things. He held three fingers up into the air. First, his three fingers had reduced to one. If you want to be a leader, you're better like people. Second, now with two fingers tightly together. If you want to be a leader, you better be an optimist. And three, I want to tell you a story of my youth. I grew up in the 60s in the middle of the civil rights struggle. If you think I'm right wing, you should have known my old man. He thought this guy, Martin Luther King, was a subversive and wholly bad for America. I didn't, and we had many heated discussions over the dinner table. I was a student and thought King had a point, but my dad thought he was a communist and needed to be dealt with like the rest of them. Then came the day. Dr King was to come to our community to speak at a rally and Dad said he would take me to see him and hence prove the point of what he really was. Just another communist. We walked 20 minutes down to the gathering place in silence. We stood with thousands of others and listened to the preacher, again in silence. And when he had finished, Dad turned on his heels and walked off to whence we came. I was walking home with him step by step, him never looking at me, but keeping his gaze forward. Then about five minutes from home, still without turning his head, he spoke for the first time since we left the house. We have been in the presence of greatness today, son. I now know exactly what that man stands for. He stands for change through non-violent means. Giuliani Jr. was now out of his story and back into the present in Harrogate and raised three fingers into the air. And therein lies my third leadership lesson. If you want to be a leader, you better know what you stand for. I must have heard and witnessed 70 or so YIBC speeches and presentations over the years, but this was the only one I can recite almost verbatim. Its gravitas and sense of history always has an effect on the audience, and I'm certain it did on this day in Bridlington. We were on our way. I went on to tell my story and that of the Sewell Group, as I have done dozens of times before, as usual trying to draw some relevant but bespoke lessons and learnings for them. I could see by their faces and their body language that they were warming to the theme, ultimately becoming a receptive and an appreciative audience. We were short of time, but I was sure that they were ready for my letter to my 16-year-old self, so I asked my host if it was appropriate to read it for them. John Skidmore responded warmly in the affirmative, and I rattled through it, maybe a bit too fast for its own good, 
but by the reaction, it was obviously worth doing. Lunch with the delegates was everything a person who had just presented to them would want. Lots of nice comments and requests for a hard copy of the presentation and the letter, including some remarks from spa staff who said they thought they knew me, but obviously didn't. I was pleased because I knew that a variation on the 45 minutes I'd spent with them would go down well with the independent retailers, but right now I was more concerned about how it would be received by local government officers. I needn't have worried. I lingered for a short while as you do when you know you've done good, but then said my farewells and went out into the bright sunlight and sea air to get into the Aston for the journey back home. It was going to be a good drive and a good day all round for we had arranged to go to dinner with Ian Grandage and his wife Shelley. Ian had coincidentally bumped into our old sportsmaster, our no longer young, iconic saviour, Brian Chubb, and Ian asked me if he could invite him as well. I was delighted to agree, as I had not seen Chubby, he was just the opposite in build, for many years. A lovely day was going to end beautifully, or so I thought. I was edging through some roadworks at Beeford and noticed I had a couple of missed calls with voicemails waiting on my iPhone. There was one message from Sue and one from my PA Joe, but both related to the same subjects. My brother Ronnie had died the previous evening. I had not seen my brother for 10 years and probably only three times in the last 25. He was ostracised by his first wife and living happily with his second whom he was evidently treating much more responsibly. I could understand him cutting all ties with his unfaithful waste of space of a first wife, but not with his children, Teresa and David, and grandchild Danielle. I had been an integral part of their tragic, parentless upbringing, and had tried hard to do my bit, with my wife, Earth Mother Sue, doing far more than me. I just couldn't understand or forgive Ronnie for acting as if his offspring did not exist, and leaving all responsibility for their upbringing to others. The weird thing is that when Ronnie and I did meet up, we got on like a house on fire, as if we were close and had never been apart. The expressions, the sense of humour, the stories of family folklore would flow, making it a tragedy that we didn't have a proper relationship in life. Now he was dead. I didn't know what to feel. The anticipated idyllic drive home changed into one of reflection, self-justification, regret and sadness. When I got home the full complexity of communication with a dysfunctional and largely estranged family became evident. I didn't do anything at first, looking forward to my dinner with the Grandages and Brian Chubb rather than thinking I had any responsibility for dealing with Ronnie's death, but I decided I had to call Ronnie's stepdaughter Joanne who had contacted Sewell ahead of his in an effort to let his blood family know what had happened. I spoke to her on the way to dinner on Hull Marina, and I'm glad I did. Joanne was lovely. She adored our kid as a stepfather, and he was evidently a brilliant granddad. You couldn't make it up, could you? Joanne explained what had happened, from her mother having a stroke earlier in the year and going into respite care, Ronnie then falling, breaking a hip, and Joanne had a mother and a stepfather to visit. Infection, a lack of decent care, despite Joanne's continued protestations and losing the will to live, eventually led to the previous evening's tragedy when, with Joe holding his hand, Ronnie passed away. 
Joanne said that Ronnie had maintained his sense of humour to the end and was talking about our Paul and his twin sister Audrey in the hour before he died, so she felt duty-bound to try and contact us. She said he was a superb stepfather to her and a grandfather to her three kids and they had a great relationship. I thanked her for her care and attention to my brother and said how pleased I was that he found happiness with his second family, having failed to do so with his first. I texted his twin, my sister Audrey, who lived in Hemingbrough near Selby. Her daughter-in-law Amanda replied, and it was obvious they didn't know, so I decided to ring Audrey as we were entering the restaurant on the marina. I seldom ring her, so I thought she would deduce that something was wrong, but she didn't. Hello, Flower. What a nice surprise. What you up to? Odd. Our Ronnie has died. I thought it best to be direct. Oh, he must have been poorly. I thought of a couple of clever replies, but realised this was my sister of Minto's fame, so kept it simple and brief, saying I would visit Joanne and report back when I knew more. Ronnie's twin sister not registering any grief, but maybe through shock, seemed to accept that. Okay, see you flower. So when I walked into the Spanish tapas restaurant to be warmly greeted by Ian, Shelley, Sheridan and Brian, who had hardly changed at all, still ultra slim and athletic with the jaunty smile of 50 years ago, he was a man who had rescued us from a military PE regime and rescued me from being the Turag that I was. Brian Chubb seemed to be as funny, friendly and as engaging as ever and I looked forward to an evening of reminiscence with Ian that would bore the girls senseless, forcing them onto the sangria. Unfortunately, it didn't work out quite as anticipated for although Brian was still as smiley and charming, he was somehow different. He misunderstood me badly a couple of times in our early exchanges and needed reminding by his wife about some simple points of etiquette over dinner. It was not till he went to the loo later that both Sheridan and Ian explained to Sue and I that Brian was poorly with early stage Alzheimer's and had to be continually reminded before coming out as to where he was going and with whom. I was really upset, feeling that I should have been more aware and observant and made due allowances. When he came back from the toilet, I did just that and things went much better. I even decided to recount my letter to my 16-year-old self, still fresh in the mind from the afternoon, with its fond references to Brian, Ian and the times we all spent together at Cottingham Secondary Modern School on Highland Way in the late 60s. It was moving, we were all emotional and Brian came to life lucidly through those early recollections. Sheridan looked relieved and even joyful and expressed as much when we departed and bade our farewells. When Sue and I got home, we discovered that our first cat, the 20-year-old iconic Tommy Boy, wasn't very well at all, or we might have a heartbreaking decision to make the next morning. We'd been dreading this time for many months, and it looked as though the time might be upon us. What a fucking day. Life happens one day at a time, and, on reflection, this one was pretty heavy with regard to its fragility and ability to surprise, to delight to teach and to inflict pain. If I could find the old acoustic guitar mum bought me and remember those half a dozen chords I'd learned, I might have been moved to write another song. 
50 years after the last one. September the 12th, 2019 was coming to a close and I had the thought that I were to spend my memoir at this point I'd reached in the morning and record the day's events and my feelings as they happened. I hope that's okay with you, the reader. It has certainly helped me. Cathartic. <laughs>